Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club clubhouse so right now it's closed off it's in beta testing you have to be an iphone member but if you join patreon and through patreon join the discord you will be able to get uh, clubhouse invites and the reason why we want people to get those clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans and you need to get invited to take part of that including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado here is the episode take care hey how's it going we have brendan o'connor with us today and he's the author of a book called blood red blood red lines and i wanted to give him a chance to introduce himself and tell us everything we need to know about him and the book the full name is <laughs> blood red lines how nativism fuels the right and if you could just uh tell the people who you are and where to find you and why did you care sure thing. this book? <laughs> sure thing. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Brendan. I'm a freelance journalist uh, based in Flatbush, uh, the author of Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Feels the Right, out from Haymarket uh, right now. Um, I, uh, what do you need to know? Oh, I mean, I guess you can find me on Twitter <laughs> at, at underscore Grendon with a G. Um, I have been covering, um, covering the far right, covering capitalism covering the disintegration of empire uh for for a while now um this is my first book um and uh yeah it it focuses on the far right but hopefully in a way that um hopefully i'm trying to bring a different kind of blend of reporting and analysis and uh a socialist perspective to these questions that you might not get in other kinds of books the best way i could describe this book is the but this is in a complimentary way. The, uh, it's, always, the, it's always sunny meme where Charlie has the conspiracy board and he's mapping out all those things. It would be like, you know what I'm talking about with all those papers on the board? I, and a bunch of I sure do. Yeah, it's like if, if, if that was true. Like, like if if uh, Charlie did if Charlie did a board like that, except when you research everything, uh, it's all it's all true, and it's actually like a coherent structure to it. That's that's what it felt like. There were a lot of things I did not realize had connections uh, to each other, like Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon's family and those weird siblings. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a, this would be a really interesting kind of movie or documentary or something. Like, there's some interesting figures in here. It's Carnegie Mellon's family, uh, these two weird siblings who grew up in a really dysfunctional household. The Mellon... F- 
the melon people are siblings, right? I want to make sure. I... The the scafe, yeah, uh, brother and sister, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then there was a connection with the um, there was a connection with Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and like a mm-hmm. nefarious kind of white nationalist eugenicist thing there. And this person is basically like you know what the Koch brothers or Peter Thiel you know were, but with immigration issues. And then Peter Thiel himself ends up in the book, like. It's an interest. It's a very interest interweaving of different people, interests throughout history that I had previously kind of thought of as just kind of independent but vaguely interrelated, you know, forces mm-hmm. that all just kind of liked anti-immigration stuff, but that I did not realize was actually a very coordinated thing. That a lot of these people eventually had a direct line into. Um, Trump. Like what I thought was going to happen was I thought you're going to introduce these people early on and then say like, you know, later on, these people took up the mantle and these people took up the mantle. But like the very first people you introduced, the T- the Tanton family, the book ends and what the guy dies in 2019. Like these people are active. Some of these people are active all the way into the Trump era. It's a fascinating yeah. read. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate the, the connection to the to the Always Sunny name because I do sort of feel, sometimes feel like Charlie um, in the work that I do. And, and I have to be careful not to get too conspiratorial, but sometimes it does feel like, you know, when you're trying to do a kind of, uh, a kind of analysis of the machinations of the, you know, individuals within the capitalist class and their, uh, and, and like the operatives and the people that carry out their, their political projects, it can sometimes feel like you're, you know, drawing red string from one disparate thing to another. Um, but you're right, you know, this, this is a, what I hope to show in, in this book is that a lot of what took place during the Trump administration and, um, even now that Trump is out of office, what I think we'll continue to see is the culmination of, you know, not just sort of broad historical trends of, you know, the various crises of capitalism, um, but, you know, that there are particular concerted efforts um, within the Republican Party and adjacent to it, where actually, you know, parts of parts of the ruling class are in conflict with each other, which is which is part of why I think things feel so so strange right now. But, but yeah, so I, I'm gl- I'm glad that I'm glad that the book was uh, illuminating in in some way for you. Yeah, it's very much a story in the traditional sense. Like it, like it's it's very much a you know a research piece with you know a lot of uh, discussion, history, and dates and and figures, but it's also very much just like an interesting ens- ensemble story. I think it's safe to say in this book, the main characters, the main through lines are the Tanton family, particularly um, John Tanton. W- would, would that be fair to say he's kind of like the main character, like like the spine of, of all this? Yeah, I mean, he isn't and he isn't. I think he's, you know, he's a, he plays a really important role. Um, and just to kind of quickly give an explanation of who Tanton is. He, you know, from one perspective, he's kind of nobody. He's like a guy who, he's just like a, a, a doctor who lived in a small town in Michigan. Um, but what he did over the course of his life, um, he really had a kind of outsized impact. He came up through the conservationist and environmentalist movement of the 60s and 70s and 
through that movement was connected with some really wealthy, powerful people, namely Cordelia Scaife May, whose family we talked about earlier, um, and with her financial backing, created this network of think tanks and nonprofits concentrated in D.C., but really all over the country that have slowly but steadily been working their way from the periphery of the Republican Party to the core and have, you know, the, the project is to kind of translate um, the sort of longstanding vulgar anti-immigrant sentiment that has uh, ebbed and flowed through the history of the United States into a, uh, a, a pseudo-intellectual policy-driven framework that was pretty much wholesale adopted um, by the Trump administration. There are people from these think tanks and nonprofits installed as political appointees in, an, I think, almost almost every federal agency that touched immigration in any way. Um, and people like Stephen Miller and uh, Jeff Sessions, before he lost his job, uh, you know, had had close ties to these organizations as well. And so Tanton, um, you know, I do try to tell Tanton's story and a big part of the book is you know, focused on him as an individual. And partly that's you know, for pra the pragmatic reasons that I had access to uh, his archives. He, he was a uh, <laughs> something of a megalomaniac or an egomaniac insofar as he like rigorously documented almost everything that he did and like almost every thought that he had. Um, and so that gave a pretty clear window into the ideas that are driving this political project. Um, and so, yeah, so a good portion of the book focuses on him, but, you know, it's not the story of any one person uh, because, you know, Tantin, like the rest of us are sort of, you know, working within the historical and material conditions that we find ourselves in, which are, you know, that like, that's just another, but I guess the way that I try to write the book is that, that's another part of the story um, and how the things that he did interacted with other forces at play. Yeah. It was like, um, I don't think if I remember right, there was anything that really kind of showed Tanton directly working for uh, Trump at any point, but they had just a network of uh, organizations and, you know, th there was like a whole portfolio of uh, mm -hmm. sub organizations that basically a ton of people in Trump's organization worked for or that Trump was citing stuff for. It was like Stephen Miller, but there's also like Kellyanne Conway. And I was very surprised at the direct um, connection that Kellyanne Conway like worked for years for um, one of their affiliated organizations. Like it wasn't just mm -hmm. she was reading their paperwork and that was it like there was a, a lot right. of active active stuff going on and what was interesting about about it and here's a question that i have for you that i always wonder about um first this is something i had a vague idea about but your book kind of made clear was how they used a lot of other causes to kind of smuggle in their white nationalist anti-immigration uh, stuff. So, like you said, there was a it was an environmentalist slash con uh, conservationist. Um, population control was one of the um, cover one of the cover mm -hmm. causes, and but it was really more about population control of certain people. Mm -hmm. And then there's like, you know, Planned Parenthood, you know, people think of as this kind of feminist organization that's, that's you know, in it just to, because it cares about all women of all races. But when you read the history, regardless of where you think it's at now, 
in its inception was very much about uh, racial, racial, ethnic eugenics. Uh, to what degree do you think Tantons and some of these other people were sincerely into like the environment or population control, divorced from uh, the racism, or is it like hopelessly intertwined? Like, do any degree to which they care about the environment, if at all, just through the prism of um, the environment. Because some of the people who are sincere environmentalists, you know, talk about how they couldn't take him and they kicked him out because uh, I think when I right. said, uh, after you after you heard them, you want to go home and take a shower. Right, yeah. Um, no, I think that I think that's a really good question. And uh, I, think, I think the difficult answer is that um, Canton and Cordelia Scaife May and some of the people that they were associated with and uh, these institutions with, I think that they were true believers uh, in the array of causes that they um, dedicated themselves to. I think that John Tanton truly believed that the immigration of non-white people, well, I mean, the immigration of people, which is really the immigration of not, mass, when, he, when he talks about mass immigration, he's really talking about the movement of non-white people to the United States. I think that he really believed that this was a threat to the, um, you know, the, the, the natural beauty and wilderness of the United States. Um, I don't think that that was a... Well, let me ask you this. Well, let me ask you this. This then was he able to separate it in any way? It seems from the racial immigration stuff. Like, like for example, if there was um, a day for just watering trees or something, and there was there was nothing to tie it to immigrants that day. With, with his eyes, like I just I just get this picture of this guy's eyes glazing over at any time at the environmentalist meeting where they're not tying it into immigrants. I guess is my like like even right. if, even if he does believe in um, the environment, it's hard for him to think of any solution or whatever that doesn't tie it into. Um, immigration and uh non-white people because he did seem to have pretty much like a one-track mind yeah so yeah yeah you're absolutely right and i think that that is that was something that's like a something that developed over the course of like it's pre- i mean pretty quickly like the early set or mid 70s like by by the mid 70s he who had been very involved in the environmentalist movement and conservationist movement was increasingly disillusioned because he couldn't get um, anybody to talk explicitly or openly about his ideas about um, you know how how this related how this how this stuff related to um, mass migration, um, which is you know I think that his his frustration <laughs> um, is kind of interesting insofar as his ideas were not completely um, outside of the mainstream at the time. Like I, anxiety about population control and the carrying capacity of the planet were, were very, were very mainstream um, in the early seventies. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and like we said before, you know, nativist ideas have long been um, present in U.S. political discourse, uh, but increasingly, you know, he 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 was like I said disillusioned with the direction that the broader environmentalist movement was going in, um, and became convinced that this particular idea that he had about the threat of mass immigration um, was 
the kind of central idea that he organized the rest of his political life around. Yeah, I mean, that book, there's a book by Paul Ehrlich, I remember, mm -hmm. uh, The Population Bomb, that was mm -hmm. very much uh, a bestseller, a bestseller at the time. So it was, it was pretty main, it was pretty mainstream, but I was surprised to um, see that uh, Paul Ehrlich was uh, a connection to Tanton too. That that Tanton that Tanton was uh, part of part of his his movement zero population growth. That was Paul Ehrlich's movement, right? Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, and yeah, part of part of what I think the research that I did shows is that this you know the the kind of white nationalist valence to the anxiety about population control and population growth is not necessarily something that Tanton like introduced to this idea that Ehrlich himself uh, was from, from, from the jump uh, sympathetic or interested to, in this kind of interpretation um, of the problems, the so-called problems that, that he was describing. Um, it's not as though Tanton like, introduced some kind of mutant version of uh, of this anxiety that that the that this is like was an a racialized anxiety uh, to begin with yeah and you have an interesting very interesting pa passage whether whether what whether what Tanton believed was a much stronger version than what Ehrlich believed or whether he was just too explicit about it either way there was a discomfort or attention and you put Tanton would try and fail to push ZPG, that's zero population growth, to take a more hardline anti-immigration position. The organization's leadership rejected Tanton's effort, a former staffer said, because, quote, they were uneasy about getting into ethnicity. They didn't want to be called racist, which seems more like they just don't want to actually be called it more than they maybe weren't, <laughs> right. weren't racist, which kind of reminds me of the Never Trumpers today, where a lot of people say, you don't really have any problem with a lot of what they believe. You just don't like uh, the tone. And it says, Tanton and his allies, they said, quote, talk in very legitimate terms about protecting our border and saving the nation's resources and so on. But the trouble is, after you've heard them, you want to go home and take a shower, unquote. And it says, Tanton's frustration with environmentalist queasy response to his ideas about immigration led him to start his own his own movement. And from there, you kind of go into Cordelia Scaife, Maine. I was wondering if you could talk about that moment where he breaks from zero population growth and connects with Cordelia Scaife May and who Cordelia Scaife May is. Yeah. So Cordelia Scaife May um, is, uh, she's a woman who uh, was an, an heiress to the Scaife family fortune. The Scaifes uh, are a very wealthy family that are sort of a branch of the even wealthier Mellon family. Um, they're sort of all together American capitalist aristocracy. Uh, Tanton and Cordelia Scape May met through one or another of these conservationist organizations and shared an analysis, shared uh, shared anxieties about the what they saw as the deficiency of the environmentalist and conservationist movements to um, take up the nativist cause to kind of be in their estimation, be honest about the, the pressures that mass immigration was putting on um, on the environment. And so it was that relationship that enabled Canton to start his own organizations, to start founding and cultivating these institutions, um, which 
Faith May, she was not the only funder. Um, there were a variety of other folks that they, they knew, you know, that, that she connected him with, uh, that he courted and courted and relationships that he cultivated. But over the course of the 80s, 90s, and really up and up, up until and after her death, uh, Cordelia's Gave Me was the was the primary funder of these organizations, all of which have sort of innocuous sounding names like Federation for American Immigration Reform, Center for Immigration Studies, um, but which have had a very um, insidious effect on our politics insofar as they kind of formalize uh, a latent white nationalist worldview. Um, and Scaife May, his, his correspondence with, Tanton's correspondence with Scaife May, I was able to read through and, and quote at length in the book and kind of show how he played on her fears about uh, basically like a kind of racial displacement, which was a concern that she shared with a lot of um, kind of far-right intellectuals of the time, the time being the late 70s and 80s, um, and still today that are kind of given different names, um, whether it's the the Great Replacement or White Genocide. Um, these are kind of the most extreme and like explicit versions of what I think is like a deep uh, like I said, r deep racial anxiety about um, demographic change and the kind of uh, fracturing of, or just not, not the fracturing, but the um, the fear that drives the maintenance of white supremacy. Scape May was completely embedded in this. Uh, and in Tanton's letters to her, you can kind of see him playing on her fears in order to get her money <laughs> to keep these organizations going. He's like I said, for a long time, they were sort of peripheral to Republican Party politics. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think the primary reason was that Scaife May and Tanton and others in their kind of cohort were supporters of Planned Parenthood, unlike, you know, the Republican Party that came to be dominated by Christ the Christian right. Um, but then, you know, in time, that history has been kind of buried as Tanton got older and got out of politics as Scape May got older and died in the early 2000s. Um, but their relationship and, and their friendship and their working, you know, their working together is what enabled this network to kind of weather the whether the uh, the economic pressures of, of, you know, needing money to survive and then kind of wait for the opportunity that the Trump campaign in 2015, 2016, and the administration uh, presented. Yeah. We were just joined by our co-host, um, Mario. Hey, everybody. It's Mario. You can catch me on Twitter at MDMill79. How's everybody doing? How you doing, Brendan? Hey, I'm all right, Mario. How are you? Good. Glad you can join us. You know, it kind of reminded me of, in a weird way, uh, the movie, like, There Will Be Blood. You know how that guy kind of goes through uh, various decades and he's always there. That's how I felt about this Tanton guy, but like a, mm -hmm. a kind of a kind of a dorkier version, you know, where this guy is just uh, <laughs> right. uh, hanging on. This guy kind of has his finger in so many different uh, groups, but basically where there's envir the environmentalist movement, the zero population growth movement, like in the 70s, there was this big bestseller called the Population Bomb. This guy mm -hmm. was around with that, but a lot of it was... Um, Planned Parenthood, 
and different people throughout the um, decades, this guy was kind of floating through the periphery, um, either so helping solicit money to fund different people, um, you know, bringing people into the fold. And a lot of things that I thought were just kind of very independent things that just happened to be talking about the same stuff or kind of was in the in the periphery of it was actually very coordinated. Like these people, I think it's safe to say, I think, uh, and it's not just your book, but other books um, that are kind of similar to this, that the right wing gets, the, the reactionary right gets very underestimated for its level of grassroots organizing. People think of the word grassroots mm-hmm. and they think of it as very much, you know, a left wing or a hippie nuts and berries thing. But I think in some ways, um, better than liberals, I think um, these guys are very good at, at grassroots um, from the ground up, organizing, fundraising. Uh, this guy, yeah. Tanson, and also, the- mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was going to say, and also they're very good at associating, you know, like a, a mental social meme with just a single word, right? So they can say, you know, this guy's a socialist. And then it drums up all kinds of imagery of, you know, a socialist society. You know, people instantly think of Cuba or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. they can just use one word and otherwise well-meaning, thoughtful policies and people, when they hear that, all of a sudden it's like, oh no, you're right. Damn, you know, I can't do this. You know, no, no medic, no health care for all because it will be like uh, you know, some third world communist country. You know, one good word is Venezuela. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at one point it was Cuba, now they bring up Venezuela. Like they're good at euphemisms as well. Like in addition to the scare words that you say, they're good at one or two or three word euphemisms for themselves. So one day it's the great replacement, then they rebranded as white genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one day it's population control. You know, the other day it's uh, in back. It's kind of interesting because sometimes things go on both sides of the equation. Like for example, one day population control is good because it's about um, you know stopping saving the resources. So they go under environmentalism. Then another mm-hmm. time they use population control as a bad thing by claiming that. Uh, White people are being Eugenics. yeah, exactly. White people are being uh, encouraged not to have kids. And like, wait a minute, but I thought population control was a good thing. Like, you know, but but white genocide is a problem. Like, uh, suddenly white. Well, so yeah, they're, <laughs> they're like a movie, they're like a movie which populations are we talking about controlling? Which populations are we exactly? What's exactly. good for the geese is not good for the gander, and that mm-hmm. that their model. A lot know? of euphemisms and moving targets. Yeah. So I think that so one guy in family that we were saying is kind of the through line through all this is the Tantons. And the main guy is, what's his first name? What's his first name again? Um, is it John. John, John Tanton. Tanton. Yeah. He just died in 2019. I thought he was only going to be there for like, you know, the first 20 years, you know, in the book. And then, but this guy was involved all the way up until uh, Trump. Oh. Yeah. So that brings you up to speed to, to where we, where we are. All right. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I was, we talk about like um, Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives and how there's so many umbrella organizations and change names of stuff. And it's all under like, you know, Ford Foundation, Open Foundation, Soros and, and different things. And you kind of have to it's very hard to keep track of things, but you realize how things tie together. And this is very much a reactionary version of that. Like there's a group called PFIR. I didn't realize that PFIR was founded by a legal person who worked for FAIR and, you know, was, was on the board of that. And it, it's just like everything kind of keeps leading back to the same people 
uh, the Heritage, not not the Heritage Foundation, but I'm thinking of another one, the Pioneer Fund. Yeah, mm-hmm. I uh, ends up being in this book and has a very um, clear connection to these people. And the one thing that I found pretty interesting, uh, Brendan, and I didn't realize how old this strain, this strain of thing was, but one of the things that Brendan mentions is that they talk about one thing we're going to do is bring up how this immigration hurts uh, native-born black people, etc. So they're kind of like concern trolling, you know, acting like, hey, one way we can win people over is by, um, you know, telling them that this is going to hurt um uh, native-born people, but also specifically native black people, which, um, you know, whether there is some evidence for that or not, that, you know, unrestricted immigration might hurt um, blue-collar black people the most, these people are still working alongside active white nationalists who want to, like, um, sterilize or eliminate black people. So, you know, which one is it? Is it Uchiwali or one mic? Like, like, Regardless of how you feel about it, these people clearly are insincere about helping helping uh, black people if they're in bed with all these like openly anti-black. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things to that's important to remember and take into account is that they are you know these these are people who they'll try anything like they they will experiment and adjust their tactics and their strategies. And if they think that there might be some short, medium or long-term benefit to introducing into their messaging, oh, you know, this is, you know, we, we want to reduce uh, immigration levels because we think that, you know, we can argue um, that it'll be good for uh, Black Americans. Um, then they think that, you know, there might be some kind of level of support that they can, that they can gain from that. Um, they'll try it. They will, they frequently return to the frame, the framing that, you know, this is a, you know, that this is a pro worker, uh, a pro worker political agenda. Um, but very rare, you know, the thing that kind of gives, gives away, gives away the lie of that is that, you know, if they were serious about being pro worker, they wouldn't be, uh, you know, trying to, they wouldn't prioritize trying to um, shut out the millions of undocumented workers that already live here. They would be supporting, you know, a legal framework that allows undocumented workers to to organize and fight for their rights and fight for better wages and better working conditions along with citizen workers. Um, yeah, and they never so seem it's to just be, completely. It's it is very disingenuous. Yeah, and they never seem, it seems to be active in like the labor movement, even for you know, like like because they're so anti-socialist, you know, like they, yeah, I never really see them involved in just straight up labor organizing or or anything like the solution to everything is just mm-hmm. keep keep uh immigrants out and then everything's gonna uh fix itself you know and then you know like i said meanwhile before, they keep closing down factories and all across the country factories are leaving the country to go do business in other places and then in a lot of these countries especially a lot of these places in middle america you know there's no work in a lot of these towns that you know used to have work there so yeah and even when they talk against free trade and stuff uh they don't really have anything to kind of bolster you know the kind of like i remember trump was talking against like free trade but uh Mm. he doesn't really talk about anything to bolster what's uh remains after they stop the free trade it's kind of like hey if you just stop the free trade everything's going to magically trickle down to uh the worker but it's still automation there's still a host of other um, factors that still will prevent like full employment, but there never seems to be talk 
talk about that. It's like it's like Brendan says, they will try anything, even uh, a superficial pro-blackness. You know, um, Brendan talks about, for example, how, you know, people people coming back from the Vietnam War and veterans are kind of being um, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, not integrating back into society well and everything. And they even jumped into, into that and, and used the disaffectation of Vietnam War veterans uh, and jump into that movement, for example. Yeah, but they really do try. They really do try everything. It's it's it's, it's yeah. very inter- very yeah. interesting. And I was doing a lot of googling uh, as I was reading the book, just to because different groups came to mind. And in addition to like rebranding terms and rebranding um, themselves, they, like I said, had different names for organizations. So this one PFIR that I had heard about, uh, I googled and. Sure enough, everything has one or two degrees of separation from Tanton and Fair. But in addition to this web of stuff that sounds so nefarious, there's this weird mundaneness to the picture that Brendan paints of him. Like, basically, this guy is always trying to um, sweet talk people, including like old ladies, uh, for money. Like, he seems very, <laughs> there's a very mundane, uh, crass, uh, I mean, very racist old ladies, by the way. Yes. <laughs> very racist, very wealthy old ladies. Right. <laughs> but yeah, if you could describe like kind of how he's always writing letters and he's always like telling people on the deathbed, you know, it'd be a great thing is if you leave us a lot of money, like the guy is kind of like very sc- scammy. If you could talk about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. So he, um, yeah, Tan- I mean, Tanton's like great skill to the extent that he had one was uh, uh, separating uh, scared racist rich people from their money um, and giving it to him. Um, and I think I think the the one that you the, the particular. Uh, correspondence that you are referring to, Trevor, is uh, he was talking to a guy who, as I recall, was a, I think, the grandson of one of the major funders of the Pioneer Fund. Um, And in one of his letters, like this guy, he's getting like he's getting on in years. And in one of his letters, Tanton is like, look, like you're getting old. Your ancestor, when he got old, left all this money to this uh, very influential eugenicist funding mechanism, uh, and you know has this has this like this legacy of this contribution to the eugenicist movement, and like how great is that? Uh, don't you want to do something like that and uh, <laughs> leave your money to me <laughs> and my my nativist movement? Um, who, you know, and by the way, you know, the Pioneer Fund was very generous over the years to Tanton's organizations and gave them millions of dollars. And actually, you know, a, a, a huge chunk of Tanton's archives are still, he, he donated all of his archives to the, the, a library at the University of Michigan. Um, and uh, I think like two thirds of it is open to the public, which is how I was able to to come through them. Um, but there are reams and reams and reams of, of of documents that are sealed for another couple of decades, and they all are. And they've, but they've been categorized. Like the the librarians have kind of gone through them already. And it's so what's public is kind of like what the label is on these, and it's just all his correspondence and documents regarding his relationship with the Pioneer Fund. We won't be able to see what's in those for for a long time. But the nativist movement and the eugenicist movement are 
you know, functionally one and the same. And yeah, so he, you know, he was trying to, trying to, to sweet talk this guy into leaving all of his, uh, all of his money to, um, to Tanton as, as a kind of, uh, to, to build up his legacy, like his ancestor. Interesting. So, and while we're on, did you have a thought to you before I, Oh, I was going to talk, I I was actually going to, I was actually going to direct this at, at, at you. You have, I think, along with me, I've always been looking at the race and IQ stuff and that movement mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I was going to tell you, Mario, um, that the Pioneer Fund, I don't know if you um, know much about them, but I'm pretty sure that based on the stuff that I know we've read independently, I'm sure you've heard of some of like, the main studies that they've um, funded. But do you know how those mm-hmm. race and IQ people always talk about the, the twin studies, the, the twins raised apart? Yeah. Yeah. The um, one raised in the yeah, yeah, and how that proves how that proves um you know that that uh, IQ is genetic and race based. They the the mm-hmm. pioneer funds are the people who funded those studies, the Minnesota Twin Family Study and the Texas Adoption Project studies. They are very known for making these wow. supposedly innocuous studies that the racists always use. So like when you see the racists come to you and say, well, this um, twin study shows that, you know, IQ is genetic because look at these twins or whatever. And they don't tell you that, hey, our people, uh, this white nationalist um, organization, the Pioneer Fund, this kind of so-called think tank um, funded and created the study. They're all into uh, making these white nationalist uh, studies. So I just wanted to give you background that you might be okay. interested in about the cool, cool. Uh, Pioneer Fund. Great. And along those lines, um, just a bit of clarification, because, you know, we always like to try to assume that we have a an, an educated audience, but also maybe someone who's just now coming into these terms. So can you guys define what do you mean by nativism? Sure. Uh I, I I can I can give my definition, Trevor. Do you want to give the definition? Sure. Oh, oh no! Please please give give your definition. You're the, okay. The guest, the guest, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I uh, so that's a good question, and it is, it is important to define our terms. I think that the way that I think about nativism as a particularly racist form of anti-immigrant, sorry, a particularly militant form of racist anti-immigrant politics that is organized around the sort of principle of a like racialized national identity. Mm-hmm. And so that any, um, <clears throat> any immigration or the, you know, the presence of people who are not already absorbed into that national identity, it poses an, an existential threat. And it kind of, um, there, there's this idea that like, uh, that identity is going to be diluted um, or, or sort of obscured. And in the United States, you know, this has a particular salience and um, <clears throat> cuts to the, the quick of deep historical memories and, and, and sort of uh, uh, trends insofar as, you know, this is a a, a settler colonial nation. This is a a a, a post slave nation where the creation of uh, you know the, the formation of white supremacy and the maintenance of white supremacy is like integral to the very idea of nationhood, national identity, nationalism, um, and, and so native is. Go ahead. They add religion into that as well. This is a Christian nation. That yeah, that's that's definitely that's definitely p- 
part, like part of this history. What's it is interesting that Tanton that you, that you bring that up because Tanton and Scapney, at least in my understanding, were not particularly religious. That this mm-hmm. that that was not a major factor in their um, in their political motives. Really? Like they were very concerned about you know like Western civilization and kind right. of Christ, like Christianity in like the broadest civilizational sense. Yes, um, but what really, they, that was always code. Yeah, that's that, and, and and that's all of those guys at the top of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, behind the scenes of these things, man. Yeah. I, I think I think something to tie in there too is I think that for some of these people, Christianity is they think of Christianity as a culture more than a religion mm-hmm. they specifically mm-hmm. believe. So I think a yeah. lot of them are Christian as in, oh, Christianity is a, is a, is a, it's great parables. It's a great um, sign of Western. They treat it as a Western accomplishment the same way they call democracy or other things. That's a, that's a, Western a great distinction, man. Yeah. I'm going to have to keep that in mind. That's a, you said it more, they treat it more as like a cultural contribution. Type of thing. Yeah. Contribu- gotcha. Okay. More than something that they really like spiritually or earnestly. <laughs> believe some of these people because i mean i'm saying from seeing how they talk about it or whatever like they'll bring up great things that western civilization which is a code for like white european people did and they'll bring up that something interesting too i would say which bring up the the um religion question in brendan's book um it talks about some people who are like anti-semitic in the movement but also some people who are actually like jewish and like stephen miller is like uh jewish so some people i think i think that's why some people will say judeo-christian instead of yeah. uh christian because when you phrase it that way you can bring jewish people into, into the yeah, movement. like dennis prager is known for that mm-hmm. uh incorporating that term. i don't know if you guys are familiar with who that is i'm sure you you've heard the name before but he uh he uses that phrase a lot he he, he goes well Oh wait, you cut off for a second for me. I don't know if you cut off for. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Can okay. you hear me now? Yeah, you're back. Yeah. You're back. No, I would say Dennis Prager is well known for the Judeo-Christian ethic that he talks about uh, on his broadcast, and he he's Jewish, and so uh, he goes well out of his way to make emphasis of that point. So you know that feeds right into what you were saying about it being a cultural thing. As a matter of fact, I think he talks about it more along the lines of a, of a cultural phenomenon as opposed to, you know, a type of spirituality to be adhered to seriously. You know, at least that's how I hear it when I used to listen to that show. Yeah, I think yeah, it's good for I recruiting think, people, you know, too. Think, oh, sorry, go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. No, I was saying, I think it's good for recruiting people who might not be into religion as well to frame it that yeah. way without losing the religious people at the same time. Yeah, Jordan yeah. Peterson comes to mind when, yeah. when you talk about that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, person? I think yeah. I think also that, you know, like, if we sort of, take a step back and like realize that, okay, this, you know, this idea of like Judeo-Christian civilization, which as you say, it's like, it's really a cultural idea. And it's like, it does not really include like, um, you know, black Southern Christians or or, like Catholics for like Catholics from like rural Mexico. Like this is not, this is not who these people are talking about. It's a specific, (laughs) yes, it's a very specific brand of, of, uh, Judeo Christianity that they're talking about. That's an excellent point. But they're not afraid (laughs) to situationally weaponize these people. Even the, um, Mexico ones like some of these people will use mm-hmm. um Mexican conservatives you know as like you know mascots they'll use black um black conservatives or whatever you know but yeah but you could tell there's, there's nothing sincere about it and that they would turn on them in in a second 
um, when when convenient, especially when you look at some of the other people, these people are in are in bed with. And yeah, I mean, the web of stuff was so crazy because I'm very into reading about the Pioneer Fund and stuff, and I had no idea they had such direct ties to uh, FAIR, which, you know, I didn't know it as big tie to white white nationalism, even though I knew a lot of times the goals the goals aligned. You know, I didn't know that that's mm-hmm. such active connection connections to that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, also, um, Pioneer Fund had uh, a lot to do with the bell curve, the bell curve as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But th- to give you an idea of how innocuous this stuff can be or how it can, it can pop up, right? We had a guest a couple of weeks ago and a lot of people thought like, you know, I uh, took a lot of airtime for the guest because I kind of had to jump in because the guest was talking about stuff. It, it, was, it was a leftist um, guest uh, named Garrison Lovely and he brought up very... Um, you know, innocuously and innocently about this uh, uh, twin studies and whatever in relation to something else. And I had to jump in there and say, those twin studies are funded by like, the worst people on, on earth. You have no idea. Mm-hmm. But, but I've run into a lot and I had to give him like the whole like quick uh, history, but also there's a lot of like faulty science behind them that, you know, it's yeah. not just that it's just yeah. hurt feelings or whatever. There's a lot of... Um, faulty science that has been um disproven a lot but these people are very good at in addition to like like they're good at a lot of the mundane things that i feel like i wish a lot of left and liberal organizers were better at and one of them is marketing their ideas and like laundering them into a palatable form for the mainstream so you meet a lot of people who talk about these um twin studies and other things that you know, like the person yeah. might be against the bell curve because the bell curve is kind of more explicit and exposed as racist, but they might casually bang up studies things or other things that the Pioneer Fund has laundered into the mainstream and, you know, taking their fingerprints off of as white nationalists. Yeah. And also I wanted to point out as well, there's some other things that fit under to that into that umbrella as well that go back even further than things like the twin studies. And that's this idea, for example, how it infiltrates the medical field, the idea that uh, black people are able to um, endure more pain and thus need less, you know, amounts of um, pain medication and things like that. So that was so prevalent that it was actually even still believed by new medical students, people that were just getting into medical school and things like that. They actually still held a lot of those beliefs. So it was kind of like this it somehow turned to like this common knowledge that black people can endure more pain. And so we don't need as much, you know, Vicodin or whatever uh, post-op medication that you need to manage pain. We don't need as much as everybody else does. You know what I'm saying? So those types of ideas infiltrate heavily, man. You have to always be on the lookout for stuff like that. Well, I think there's also something to be said about the fact that like the people on the far right who are pursuing, um, People who are pursuing like like far right political projects, when they you know produce these like scientific studies or policy papers or what have you, kind of give this sort of like formal official language, they're really they're not necessarily like introducing a new idea or a new narrative to people. What they're doing is giving justification or a language to something that a lot of people in this country either already believe or is sort of familiar to them. Like, you know, the idea of, you know, being, you know, the idea, like the idea and and the discourse of nativism is something that is, it was already present in this sort of like subterranean way in American political discourse. Whereas on the left, 
like we have a lot farther to go mm-hmm. in in kind of like introducing the you know as, as the saying goes like an, like another world is possible um like we're asking people to imagine something that has never been done before whereas the advantage the right has is that they are able to mobilize like you know just like it is in the in the like the reactionary traditionalist ideas um that are you know that you know that are that are at their core uh repressive and exploitative and oppressive um but are at the very least like they're able to do it in in a narrative and a story that people can feel familiar with i forget the phrasing or the metaphor the the simile but uh what is it called when you like oh salt the earth yeah i feel like uh they had a big head start in salting the earth against a lot mm. of the um ideas that radicals and leftists leftists have while at the same time i think they're very much the devil you know for a lot of people like a lot of people at least whether it's been good to them or bad to them understands what a capitalist society looks like you know it's, it's a devil it's a devil you know you know whereas that's a, that, yeah yeah and see you and i have had these conversations a million times you know that you know what i'm talking about like we've had these conversations so much about we know what it or at least what's passed off as capitalism we know exactly what that looks like and then the disadvantage that um those of us who are more on the left have is that Oftentimes, it's very difficult to point to an example of, you know, what our ideal situation would be because it really doesn't exist in a lot of forms. You know what I'm saying? Because there's always this more, I guess you could say, demonstratively negative aspect to some of that stuff, you know, when they point to things like Venezuela, Cuba, et cetera, et cetera. But what they don't tell you is that a lot of that stuff is caused by outside interference and sabotage. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, that's going a little deeper than, than, you know, we're going to have time for here, but you know, you know, I totally agree with you. Like it's hard for, you know, you want to use Cuba as an example. Oh, look at this horrible socialist country. This is what socialism gets you. But then you don't talk about economic embargoes. You don't talk about <laughs> not being yeah. able to trade with other countries, oh, like oh, yeah, it, but, to get your economy going. But they also don't talk, they also don't talk about like the good things that happen. So for example, um, everyone's able to get the healthcare and Cuba was able able to send doctors to other countries to uh help with their covid stuff because you know right. they had so many doctors and that gets very underplayed so in addition to hiding how the u.s is responsible for the bad things that happen or outside forces are responsible they also make sure to underreport any positive aspects right. that come out of any of this stuff great point great point mm. yeah i mean i think i think that's you know like part of the part of what i talk about in in the book is that like the context that a lot of this like the 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 anti-immigrant politics Mm. is happening in and you know a big part you know part of the part of neoliberalism in addition to the kind of economic restructuring of the 70s and 80s and the political regimes that were inaugurated by reagan and thatcher uh and like the expansion of the police state and of mass incarceration is that there's a kind of discursive shift. Neoliberal capitalism is very good making it impossible to conceive of any other way of living in a way that earlier forms of capitalism were less good at doing. Um, And that seems to be part of what's like shaking loose 
in the past couple of years is people beginning to be able to imagine alternatives. Um, but that's, you know, that's uh, conversely, that's part of the left project is to, mm-hmm. is to push people beyond like just imagining it, but actually starting to like move towards it. I think that started with the, um, with the bailouts that happened in 2008. Once people saw mm-hmm. that a lot of people that were even more, you know, along the lines of, you know, moderate to right. Once they saw how the country was willing to, you know, do corporate welfare on a massive scale like that, a lot of them, myself included, said, oh, to hell with that, then. I don't want to hear anything about <laughs> I don't want to hear anything else about, you know, let the market decide and pull right. yourself up by a booster. Oh, no, no, no. That, that, all that went out of the window when you saw that in such a demonstrative fashion. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, one thing- I think the left should use that as exhibit a in any conversation that they have and when it comes to things like this yeah and something that really gets me upset right is a lot of people on the left sometimes can be pedants and be very pedantic about stuff so bernie sanders said once um he said several times he goes uh this is a country that uh is against uh, socialism for poor people but uh is okay with socialism for the rich and he brought up all the bailouts and stuff like that and what's funny is back in the day when I used to lean more right, you know, when I used to believe in that type of uh, pro-black form of uh, black conservatism, like like not that current Candace Owens strain, but uh, right. Mario and I have talked about how they used to market this kind of pro-black version of black conservatism like uh, back in the 2000s. That was one of the arguments that really kind of uh, shook me shook me up. Uh, yeah. similar to like what, what you were talking about with the bailouts when it was phrased like that it was very effective and when Bernie Sanders said it I saw all these people on Twitter saying oh I hate this phrasing because actually socialism <laughs> is this is- I'm feeling very called out right now oh really oh <laughs> really <laughs> I was like I get it but it worked on me it's good just just deal with it once you get Bernie Sanders into office you know explain to the people the, the uh, nuances of why that that's technically uh, not true, but I think these people don't have that problem. They just uh, yeah. they will say whatever they have to do. They will <laughs> right. they will be loose with any definition they have to be with. You know, they will bring up uh, black workers and act like they're <laughs> they care about yeah. them. They'll bring up anything, and I think that's one big uh, thing that can be learned from these people. You know, they will yeah. say what they have to do to get the job done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He said he felt called out there. On the- <laughs> yeah, yeah, that wasn't meant to be a call out, but it, it, it really does drive me crazy. It drives me no, crazy because it right. worked on you, me. Like, your yeah. point is well taken. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, one thing about this book, book Mario, is uh, you can read it like in a weekend. Like, like one thing I like about it is like there's someone called David Garrow, and there's another guy. I think his name is Caro. He writes those um, Master of the Senate books and whatever, or Pearlstein, who write these really really super exhaustive down to the weed weeds type books and what i like about this book is it's kind of like a skeleton that ties together which is not to say it's light on information because it's not but it doesn't really go super super into the weeds but it gives you a nice framework where there's a lot of these things that i knew about separately and maybe like a deeper dive into but i never really got a picture how it all interrelates but the last third of the book is resources and books that you can go into if you want to do a deeper dive into any 
particular or any particular subset of, of any of this stuff. So within the text of the main book and also in the final resources section, it's uh, it gives you all the information that you need if you really want to do, say, a deep dive into, for example, the, the Tucker books on the Pioneer Fund. I had read those Mm-hmm. Uh, previously, you know, and he, and he mentions them and he mentions the Pioneer Fund, but it gives you enough of a picture of all the disparate parts of this, you know, so you get an idea of what a big multi-armed octopus this is, but without um, killing you with, with details, you know, just pointing you where you have to go. And I was talking about that before we started recording, but I wanted to let people at home kind of get an idea of what, uh, you know, you can get gotcha. with this book and like what I think is a big strength of it. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that wasn't really. I guess that wasn't really a question, but but uh, <laughs> more of a statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but um, the what was crazy to me was that one thing. One thing I I think is that I don't think it's crazy to worry about open borders and you know how it's going how it's going to work. As in, um, there have been like studies by some some people who are not affiliated with these people but um you know like black academics that you know talk about how with immigrant with unskilled immigration etc that uh the black the native born black workforce uh absorb a disproportionate uh amount of the brunt of some of it and they give plausible arguments i don't know all the counter arguments or whatever but i do think it's kind of a plausible thing to talk about at least if you want to um assuage assuage people uh that this is going to be safe but the problem that i kind of realized when i was reading this book is that it's very hard to have a good faith approach to this stuff because it seems like anywhere you turn you have to get in bed with these white nationalist people and that's that's something that i wanted to uh kind of talk about like is there a space to have a good faith discussion in this arena when these people have seeded every or you know got their hooks into like every single um portion of this you know like they've pretty much dominated the research dominated the discourse if you found any good faith um discussion of this kind of stuff anywhere that's a really good question i mean because yeah like on 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 the right and amongst conservatives and even liberals you have in my what in my opinion is really just variations on the same kind of argument which is like you know uh which is like always presupposing like a a a hard binary between citizens and non-citizens you know americans and non-americans uh and and whether whether you're a liberal or (laughs) or uh you know a far a far-right reactionary kind of operating within that framework and then on the left you you know there are i guess some people that are offering more nuanced way of thinking about it but in most cases i think we find ourselves falling into and i have done this myself uh i'm I'm not you know i'm not exempt from from this we end up falling into kind of sloganeering um and you know, standing behind, like avoiding having a hard conversation about present conditions by focusing on, you know, the, the ideal that we are working towards, which is, you know, at least, at least for a lot of, for a lot of people on the left, uh, you know, a world without, a world without borders. Um, but that, you know, that's not, <laughs> that's not like a policy framework that uh, can be applied um, today. Well, but I do think that, go ahead. Oh, no. 
I thought you were I thought you were done, but you were saying I do think so. So please finish your thought, and then and then I'll say. Yeah, I was just I was just gonna say I think that like you know it's kind of like I was saying before is that like if we are like if we are serious about applying you know look like looking at the way that the um like the the working class in the United States, but really you know across North America and and around the world is. The way that it is, um, like the 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 management of labor and the way that labor is exploited, we have to think about migrant labor, and we have to think about the role of borders and immigration enforcement. And in the in the U.S. specifically, migrant labor and undocumented migrant labor in particular plays a really critical role functioning of the economy already. And so it seems to me that like. You know, it, yeah. If we just if we just jump to like, okay, we just need to demilitarize the border, decriminalize all border crossings, and just whoever wants to come and go can. I mean, that's never going to like. That's just not a realistic thing to organize for under the current on the current political terrain. But I think that we can think about like, what are the kinds of you know, what kind of labor organizing can we orient ourselves around that are oriented towards bringing citizen and non-citizen workers together about, you know, building power for undocumented workers in the industries where they are highly concentrated in, like agriculture, like construction, like service industries, um, and kind of using that as our starting point to then build towards what is a just and equitable way of thinking about immigration that, you know, creates a livable existence for all workers, irrespective of their of their citizenship status. Because you're right, like people do have legitimate concerns that are not necessarily driven by um, racial anxiety, like, you know, fear of, 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 of white genocide. Um, that's not the only reason to be worried about yeah, well, one concrete example I'll give is that when um, Bernie Sanders said some stuff about, you know, like he's for immigration and wants to be fair to immigrants, but he also wants to be sure that there are things to protect, uh, you know, workers and in, in America and that we uh, keep that in mind, too. And then a lot of people on the left got very upset with him. But then uh, Andrew Nagel writes this thing like the left case for um you know, um, immigration patrol or whatever. And, you know, I read it and I was like, oh, okay, well, there's some interesting points brought here. I don't know if I support the whole thing, but uh, there's interesting conversation to be to be had here. But then uh, the next week she goes on Tucker Carlson. And I, and, I was, and I was just so turned off. I was like, okay, if this is what we're going to have to do <laughs> to uh, have this conversation, <laughs> right. I'm not I'm not interested. You know what I mean? And And I just feel like, all roads always end up leading uh, there, which kind of frustrates me that there's no place to have a kind of good faith conversation about uh, any of this because it seems like um, people always sooner or later end up getting their research from these people or trying to form some kind of um, loose coalition with sooner or later the worst people on earth in, in my book. So. <laughs> well, I think also that, you know, something that, on the left, we have to be get get better at doing is being careful to remember that you know it, I think as much as we defend the people's right to the freedom of movement, that also has to be coupled with the right to have the freedom to stay, um, which is actually some like 
which is actually something that I believe the the um, Zapatistas uh, from a very from very early on were a critique that they articulated, which is that you know people are displaced across the global south um, by imperialism, by climate crisis, which is caused by capitalism, uh, by you know droughts and flooding and and all of these things that you know are driven by the political and economic forces of the global north. People are displaced. You know, given the choice, most people would probably just would prefer to stay with you know in their in their homes where their families are, where they grew up. Like, and so this conversation. Part of the reason why you know the right and people like Tucker Carlson are always so happy to bring on um, you know to to hear from leftists that uh, are are willing to entertain kind of immigration restrictionist ideas is yeah. well the condition they're 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 happy to do that so long as you're not also going to talk about uh imperialism <laughs> and, yeah. and talk exactly. about these other kinds of things. thank you and that you can't even have that mm-hmm. conversation in good faith without discussing imperialism right. and, and the things that the that you know the west does to keep certain countries in in a, in a state of economic deprivation to where people feel like they have no choice but to leave and go seek uh you know greener pastures elsewhere you know so right. you create the problem that you complain about right and you don't you don't want any real genuine solutions like it's mm. it's unbelievable to me but that, here great, we are a great a great example too is a great example too is that uh jimmy Dore recent controversy where he came out and said hey guys i talked to a boogaloo boy and guess what they're a pro-environment and pro this you know you're trying to say like hey these guys could be a good um um, <laughs> a, a, a allied allied to the left, but basically he, he was just said he took them at face value as to what they uh, said they were, and it, it so reminded me of like reading this book about how these people have smuggled themselves into like environmental movements, into uh, population control movements, into superficially labor focused um, movements mm-hmm. or whatever, and I, I was just so shocked that like the the naive, naivete of what. Uh, Jimmy Dore was saying in that tweet. People don't take into consideration that you have on both ends of both extreme ends of the aisle, right and left, you're going to have overlap in certain general ideas, right? So, for example, the Boogaloo Boys are in favor of eliminating the current system that we have right now as well, at least in their their widely known stated goals. The problem is they have a totally different end game in mind than, you know, leftists may have in dismantling capitalism and in the way that the U.S. government operates right now, dismantling imperialism and things like that. Their goal is a hell of a lot different. <laughs> yeah. A lot, a lot of pro-black people fall into that trap, too. Like, for example, they right. might like someone because they're against, um, you know, restricting access to guns. But uh, you might want to do it to protect, to you know, for have armed self-defense, you know, as a mm-hmm. black person. They want it because they want to start a race war. And right. <laughs> I see people get, like, sucked into working exactly. alongside these people. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. That's a great example. And, and now, see, now you got me feeling called out. <laughs> <laughs> now i feel called out a little bit because that's kind of you know what one of my struggles is internally you know no but no but uh i've seen you like call out like we're not gonna like uh name 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 names but because i don't want to i don't have proof that these people have ties with white nationalists but but we yeah, talked about yeah, people yeah. that we have said uh 
at least carelessly seem to be promoting like you know the wrong kind of uh pro-gun people you know like gotcha. yeah yeah, yeah. For sure, for the, sure. i know two, exactly what yeah 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 there's two names in particular because it's never been proven that they have explicit ties to white nationalists right. i don't want to uh gotcha say anything libelous but 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 yeah the, 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 the <laughs> i do think you know i do think that there's something there's something there's something in this in so far as like we're all living through the same crisis right and so to a certain extent the people who are looking for ways to respond to that crisis and create something different there's going to be a formal similarity in that if you're not careful and if you're sort of naive, if you are not someone who is actually connected to, to, to movements and political education and struggle, you can get taken in um, and be, let's maybe through your naivete or your, uh, you know, whatever it is, like, it almost doesn't matter, um, not be able to see Oh, this is this is this is this is disingenuous. This is I'm not seeing the bigger picture, mm-hmm. um, and that can you know that can create the appearance of uh, I don't know uh, some kind of uh, like overlap or similarities. But I think that it's ultimately kind of superficial because you as you say, like if you look at the content of what it is that people want and are fighting for, it is actually not just different but complete like completely contradictory and that right. one can't ex- the, the mutually exclusive right exactly 100 percent. but i think you know what we have the a lot of times people have the uh suffer from this thing of you know we'll cross that bridge when we come there you know what i mean and so they're willing to take in allies if they agree on you know 90 percent of something they're willing to take on or at least partner with certain unsavory groups of people in order to get to whatever their main goal is. And then they have this, this false assumption that, you know, once we get there, then we can deal with or destroy the other, the, the 10% that we don't agree with. Once we get to the end game, that's not a guarantee. You know what I mean? Like once you get, once you guys accomplish whatever your 90% is, that 10% can be super detrimental, right? It could be, you know, something that it can can destroy you and the other side wins. Like, they have the same thought process, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's why it's just like, it's always this constant argument of do we throw the baby out with the bathwater because we don't agree on this one 10% thing and we agree with 90% of everything else or do we just stay away altogether? I think a lot of groups are struggling with that, you know, as something, something I notice about why that doesn't work as well is um, politics is like a slog. And I feel like when you have convert zeal or, fresh out the gate zeal and everybody has these moments like you know in George right after George Floyd there was this kind of feeling of um mobilization uh Kwame Torre talks about mobilization versus um organization and if anyone mm. ever Google mm-hmm. starts that speech it's pretty good but he talks about how mobilization and he gives an example it's like uh Martin Luther King was a very good mobilizer he was you know able to get uh protests up and running really fast he was able to get a lot of energy happening but he never really built a framework when there was a election for you know the southern um christian um whatever leadership uh he he didn't 
do politics good enough to like form the relations we needed to like win this election or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? But mm-hmm. I said Malcolm X, for example, uh, was a very good organizer. Like every time he went to a city and spoke, and a lot of people don't know this about him. And a big problem is um, a lot of people get this, get their stuff from the autobiography by Alex Haley and mm-hmm. and the movie by Spike Lee. So it doesn't talk about a lot of the nuts and bolts of what Malcolm X mm-hmm. did, but everywhere Malcolm X left, he left a mosque. He was very big into grassroots organizing and and, and structural stuff. So he created a mm-hmm. lot of mosques, whereas uh, Martin Luther King didn't really, you know, after he left the city, after protesting, you know, he didn't really leave anything behind. And the internet nowadays and all this stuff, with this virality is very, very good at mobilizing, but it's not great at organizing. Organizing is slow. Right. And I think one problem that uh, to add to what to add to what Mario said, another reason why I think the 90 to 10 thing doesn't work is because people can't keep it together, in my experience, long enough to even make it to the point where uh they get what they want because because it's a slow process though that 10 percent ends up causing infighting uh and falling apart before you cross the uh finish line you know with those yeah uh alliances of convenience you know like like Mm. like kind of like how in this in in this thing with tanton he couldn't stick around with the zero population growth people because they weren't going on board with his hardline um immigration stuff like Mm -hmm. like like i think it's another reason like you just can't last very long in these um coalitions you might last long enough to mobilize but you're not going to last long enough to uh actually organize and that's where you really cross the finish line oh yeah that's a great point yeah and you know in in a weird way you know as you're talking about malcolm x and kind of creating these lasting institutions that are then able to sustain struggle over time through the ebb and flow of um, different mobilizations, like Tanton broke with other parts of the conservationist movement and then created these institutions that were able to endure. And then when the moment came, they were ready. And that moment took the shape of, of, of Trump and the Trump, Trump campaign and Trump administration. And I do agree for sure that we are on the left, we're in a moment of being able to mobilize people very quickly. Um, but it's very reactive. It's very like, uh, you know, it's always kind of in response to, uh, in response to one like immediate crisis or another. And that's necessary. Like we have to be, we do have to be able to do that. Um, but it's always, you know, we're not being, we're not able to, <laughs> to create like our own kind of crisis, you know, to be able to create things on our own, create the crisis on our own terms, uh, because we haven't built up the kinds of institutions that, you know, that Malcolm X was, was, was trying to, um, and was, a, and, and succeeded at to, to a certain extent. But I'm going to tell you guys something, uh, it's hard to blame the left or or black radicals, or uh, uh, immigration reform people, or any of these people, it's, it's hard to blame them for not organizing because I feel like one key part to organizing is to make people feel like there's a real unifying um, crisis, you know, um, that requires more than just just mobilizing. Because I think emotion and being reactive is not going to be enough to keep you um, active. Because you get tired. Like, you know, even the George Floyd thing, like the outrage got kind of tiring. It just kind of burnt itself out you, to, to a degree. Uh, and and what really kind of woke me up to this is this freaking COVID thing. If this COVID thing does not have people wanting universal health care, 
uh, to the point that they're willing to like storm the White House for it. Like, if this is not doing it, people are like, oh, we just wait for, for vaccines. The, the, the free market will ha- handle it. I was like, wow, we are really screwed. Like, oh, I, yeah. thought, <laughs> I thought when that COVID thing happened and the mass unemployment and all that stuff, I thought Bernie Sanders was going to have this huge surge at the last second. I'm like, oh my God, this is a gift to Bernie Sanders. And people were like, uh, let's go with Biden. Let's go with the old. Uh, let's go with the old, uh, tried and true. And I was, so I think that's gonna really be a big problem as far as organizing. That, well, you maybe know, I think that the yeah. biggest obstacle to the left in this country is the the center left. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, or the the moderate Democratic establishment is probably a bigger obstacle to overcome mm-hmm. than even the right would be. You know what I'm saying? In a lot of ways, because. You, I'm, I'm with you, T. I, I, I'm very shocked. I, I still, you know, fi- scratching my head on how. Well, actually, no, I'm, I'm not scratching my head because I know how, you know, the, the, the internal politics of the party is what kept uh, uh, Bernie from really getting a huge push. That's a whole nother discussion for another day. But, you know, I still find myself amazed that, you know, here we are again. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I have seen like, people get more up in arms over uh instagram outage like like i feel like if if instagram and twitter and facebook were down for like a week i think people would be in, a, in the street with pitchforks <laughs> like, the i have to i have to thirst trap people need to know what i'm eating i have not been able to tell, take a picture of what i've been eating for like a week and somebody's got to die like like, like right. yeah i feel like we you see that bro like when when instagram has any type of bug for you know a few hours people are you know hitting them up immediately like hey what's going on here i'm not getting the i'm not getting as many likes on my selfie as I normally do. What the hell's going on? Yeah, like you know? People need to see my ass and my meal and they're not seeing right. either. It's driving me. Yeah, but uh, healthcare people dying? Um, let's wait and see. Right. <laughs> Let me post this hashtag and, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah. Uh, I want to read this passage by, by uh, Brendan. This is, this, uh, Mario, this is a great depiction of, like, this guy and his, like, uh, constant Another guy reminded me of, I think there was a movie, I think it was called like The Lady Killers or something. It was the kind of movie where this guy was always uh, getting, I think it was getting money from old women and like poisoning them or something and <laughs> and, and whatever. And this thing so reminded me of uh, the movie The, the Lady Killers. Uh, it was an Alec Guinness. It's, it's a funny British movie, but it goes, into, this lady may is a descendant of the the Mellon family, right? And it's kind of funny because Carnegie Mellon has like the foundation that gets associated with a lot of uh, liberal left-wing causes, I think. But these other Mellons, who I think are related to the same to the same Mellons, right? If, if I understand correctly, have have like almost a billion dollars worth of donations to some of the most heinous, you know, people. So basically they funded both sides of the um of the culture war depending on which which melon you're talking about but this 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 may lady is one of the melons is super racist you know and it says in 2005 facing a terminal pancreatic cancer diagnosis may asphyxiated herself with a plastic bag leaving behind an 825 million dollar uh, estate in the years following her suicide filing showed the calcom Foundation, which was May's primary funding vehicle toward the end of her life, received $441,886,012 from May's estate and the Cordelia S. May Family Trust, another more opaque funding vehicle, as well as all of her personal property and more than 450 acres of real estate. 
Between 2006 and 2017, so overlapping into the Trump era, a decade that saw unprecedented mobilization of migrant workers, comprehensive immigration reform twice defeated in the U.S. Congress, and the election of Donald Trump, Maine's Colcom Foundation poured approximately $138 million into the Tantin Network, that, that same guy, most of which would not have existed without her support in the first place. So first she helped support the creation of all these things, and after her death, it's a perfect example of like um, you know creating things that last. They put all this money um, put into it. The bulk of that money went to FAIR, um, F-A-I-R, the Center for Immigration Studies, which I heard of before and I did not know was tied to these people until this book, and Numbers USA, three of the biggest anti-immigration think tanks that Tanton either founded or nurtured. In the Trump administration, political appointees in almost every federal department that touched immigration as well as a stalled assistant secretary of state nominee, included Tanton Network posts on their resumes. And I thought that was really a testament to how good this guy was at oh, yeah. uh, uh, getting money out of these these people. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, so this guy was active from 2000... This guy was active from, like, the 70s all the way till till now, and most of us haven't even heard his name. Yeah, and they like to keep it that way. They don't like it. They're like roaches, man. They don't like exposure to daylight. They, they don't <laughs> stay in the dark, man. You know, they don't like uh, <laughs> they don't like attention. I, I feel like it's a big problem with the black movements, though, because because the black movements, because, for example, you had the, the Black Lives Matter protest, the first one, then the second ones. And we've had so many kind of names pop out of that. We've, we had like the three Black Lives Matter founders, D-Ray, all these people. But if you ask like who was a superstar that came out of this fair thing, man, a lot of these names, unless you're an avid researcher of this stuff, you know, Rushton is not really a household name. Um, Tanta is not really a household name. Like all these people, like, like it's, you know, they're much better at um, just getting the grassroots stuff done and, and keeping their names kind of um, hidden. Do you think that, I mean, that's it, deliberate? Also, it helps to have... It helps to have hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> to, to play with and to, to experiment with. Yeah. Do you think that's, that's that's deliberate or, you know, have there been people who have um, wanted to be kind of um, superstars and make names of themselves? Like, Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, in a way, Cordelia Scaife May's older brother, Richard Scaife, uh, is is one of those. He he gave even more money to a, a wider array of conservative causes over the course of his life, and uh, never didn't really shy away from the spotlight. Um, he, he wasn't he wasn't like um, you know he wasn't like the Koch brothers who were like very careful and deliberate about how they engage with media and and cultivate a, a public profile. Um, so you know, I don't know. Like there, there are there are some people on the right. How would you how would you describe willing to kind of put themselves out there? Go how ahead. would you describe Teal? Uh, Teal seems to be uh, weird because mm. he kind of seemed like he didn't want to really be exposed uh, as behind the Hulk Hogan lawsuit and some other stuff. But sometimes he does seem he's a weird one. He's mentioned in your book too, where he seems to kind of vacillate back and forth between wanting to publicly, um, you know, show his beliefs and wanting to stay in the shadows. Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, just by virtue of his you know actions, we can see that there are some things that he wants to be associated with and some things that he that he doesn't. And um, I think that, you know, to, to a certain extent, I think that, um, you know, having having a reputation as like a mad, a mad genius, <laughs> like an evil, a secret evil billionaire uh, is part of his sort of branding. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think he... 
shies away from it exactly. Um, uh, how do I think? I mean, I think that he, uh, you know, on the other hand, you know, once something is out there, he kind of embraces it, um, which is, you know, sort of Trumpian with a tr- sort of Trumpian shamelessness. I don't know. I think, I think they're, I think, you know, they're they, these, these billionaires and these people, they, um, they're very, uh, they're very flexible. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's interesting about what you say is, uh, even when, uh, Tanton died, it was interesting how they did not, he still wasn't signing his work. Like, like his, uh, his mm. obituary slash eulogy was mentioned everything, but this, you just think this was a nice, uh, old civic, civic minded guy, you know, it's, it's, Right. It's interesting that even in even in death, uh, this guy who has such a huge um, um, impact on all this stuff and a finger in so many um, anti-democratic uh, reactionary pots was very uh, played close to the vest, which is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and they, you know, the organizations themselves kind of distance themselves from him um, for just the practical reason that, like. It is not, you know, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's like, it's, it's bad optics, um, to be associated with someone who is openly, uh, openly using nativist, anti-Semitic conspiratorial language and describing their political project. Even, you know, it's, it's kind of like you were saying before, it's like, it's not, the problem is not (laughs) that the problem is not being racist. The problem is like being perceived as racist. Yes. Uh, (laughs) and, and, and that is, you know, that, that holds true, um, for, uh, that holds as, as true on the right as it does for, for liberals. Something I found interesting that ties into what you just said is something called the stage theory by somebody called Swensrud. And when I read your section on the stage theory, the stage theory is very much to me like um, that infamous Lee Atwater interview in 1981 where he talks about the sudden strategy. Lee Atwater was talking about how Republicans can win the vote of racists without sounding racist themselves. And uh, this is a quote. This is the passage. It goes, you start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 19 68 you can't say nigger that hurts you backfires so you say stuff like uh force busing states rights and all that stuff and you're getting so abstract now you're talking about cutting taxes and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things and a byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites quote we want to cut this unquote is much more abstract than even the busing thing uh and a hell of a lot more abstract than nigger nigger and then a uh, stage theory this guy's uh Swenrud said something, was saying stuff that the Tanton network uh, wanted to kind of hide. As Tanton saw uh, the political project being un- undertaken by FAIR, this is from a passage from your book, if successful, would invite uh, three kinds of responses. This is the first stage is a knee-jerk reaction that the United States is a nation of immigrants where people refuse to even consider or talk openly about immigration as a potential problem. They quote the Statue of Liberty's poem, Bring Me Your Tired, Your Poor, and that's the end of the discussion. He explained to FAIR's newly, newly hired development director in 1985. The second stage is the caveat stage where people say, now I want you to understand that I'm not racist, nativist, or mean... But I've been thinking about this and what is the effect on the American blacks that have to compete in Miami when they can't speak English? So that's the pause where they say, I'm not a bad person, but I've been thinking about it. And it sounds like 
there is some substance here. Then he continued, the third stage is where we can have free and open discussions about it. Um, one of FAIR's basic goals is to make immigration a legitimate topic. I want to ask you, like, it seems to me like that's similar to kind of the Southern strategy, where it's like you're trying to let pe- get people on board with this stuff without triggering the part of them doesn't want to seem racist. And I was wondering about contrasting that with uh, the reason why they left zero population group, because it seems like mm. at some point he wanted to be more kind of balls to the wall and overt with this stuff. But between then and 1985, he himself kind of realized the power of subtlety. Yeah, I, that's an interesting comparison. I think, you know, one of the things that is so chilling about Atwater's description of the Southern strategy is how um, sort of clear-sighted it was in terms of like the ability to sublimate this vulgar racism and vulgar white supremacy into more acceptable, more civil sounding language without losing any of the, um, without losing any of the, the kind of toxicity and, 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 and violence of, you know, what the language is saying. And what Tanton is describing with, this state this this stage theory idea is i think in a way kind of is in a way it's kind of the opposite because what he wants is to push the terms of the conversation and the discourse in a direction where people can like away from the kind of sublimation and away from the kind of coded language into being able to talk about as he said immigration openly as as a as a problem and like the problem of immigration which was not something at the time that was just, it was just not a way that people it's just not it was just like kind of not in 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 the discourse as a way as a way of thinking about this mm. um and so it is i do think i do think that there is there's similarities to 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 the southern strategy and to what Atwater is doing. Um, uh, but I think it's kind of in the it's almost in the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's always saying like, no, it's okay to be racist. <laughs> like, it's it's okay. Like it's okay to have these conversations. Yeah, is I, what Tanton is saying. Actually, as you're describing it, it, I think I kind of figured out how it's not a contradiction. I think I think you're right, and it, it's not a contradiction to his stance with zero population growth either. It seems I think this is a through line that kind of goes through. He's similar to Atwater in that he wants to soft soft pedal or um, mm-hmm. downplay the racist part, the part that's um, anti-black or anti-non-white. But um, he's opposite of Atwater in that he wants to be more bold with the immigration discourse. So he's like, yeah. um, he wants to be more explicit, more bold, the immigration stuff, in which case you're right. He is opposite than uh, Atwater. He wants to be able to um, call out immigra- the immigration problem as an immigration problem and not use yeah. euphemism. But the racial aspect of the immigration problem seems to be like a third rail where they don't want to tie the immigration uh, problem too explicitly to white nationalists even though they're more than willing to um get in bed with get in bed with white white nationalists so so yeah, yeah. I, th- I think in a way we're both right he's like <laughs> he's like at, well they, he's like yeah. at water when it comes to actual like black people you know even trying to make it seem like he's for them but he's the anti at water when it's time to talk about immigrants he wants it to be known that's what they're talking about 
Yeah, and 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 you're in a way like as as we're talking about this, I'm kind of thinking about it. Like he, like the, the the Tanton's political project is kind of is happening after the Southern strategy like proved to be a like was successful and like like the the, the Southern strategy worked. And so he's kind of operating within that paradigm and even and within in Tanton's archives and in his correspondence, even privately, it seems to me that he was very careful not to fall into um, like a kind of open, explicit white nationalism, like even in his private correspondence with other, you know, other people who share his values and his beliefs. He was talking in terms of, in terms of culture, in terms of, you know, civilizational um, norms, in terms of, um, in terms of, you know, just like social, like social values. And so in a way he's kind of, yeah, in a way he's a kind of beneficiary or, or, or outgrowth of, of the Atwater, Atwater Southern strategy. Yeah. Um, but, I think but, yeah but he thought. does want immigration to be discussed explicitly I on think, its own terms. I think one way they mesh is that uh, he wants to add immigration to the list of the things that um, Atwater says are preferable uh, you know, to saying the N word, like, like, like he wants to introduce yes. immigration as, you know, in addition to cutting taxes and all this stuff, include immigration reform as, as one of those things that, uh, you can do without having to explicitly, uh, say how racist you are. Um, there's a lot more to the book and I don't want to just give people the feeling they can just listen to this interview <laughs> and not have to read the book. So there's a lot of stuff I deliberately wanted to leave, um, you know, on the table, on, undiscussed but i wanted to close out to ask you there's anything that you feel like you do want to talk about that we haven't you know discussed discussed from the book that that you think is um um or just any final thoughts or any final plugs that that you want to give well i guess i'll just i mean one of the things that i you know I, that i would be curious to kind of hear hear your thoughts on um is that you know, our conversation thus far has really focused on on Tanton and Scaife May and the kind of um, you know ruling class apparatuses that uh, have developed over the course of the past century to um, regulate and and adjust um, flows of immigration and and all of that. But you know, a large part of the book is about kind of more contemporary far right organizing um, that and the kind of resonance and relationship between these sort of elite uh, policy oriented people and the, you know, rank and file um, proud boys and boogaloo boys. And oh um, yeah. The, and the, like, and you know, I spent a lot of time in the book on that yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and that's, that's you know, part of what I think is sort of different about this book is that, I'm trying to figure out like what is the relationship between um, between these different groups and how how do they relate to each other? So I don't know. I'm curious uh, well, what what you what your takeaway from from sure, those parts of the book were. Sure, sure. Was. Um, I'll tell you I'll tell you this about the Proud Boy um, stuff. Um, this is there is a lot of connection to the Proud Boy stuff that I found pretty interesting, and um, I guess one reason why I focus so much on the um, older historical stuff i guess is because i was very taken by mm -hmm. uh, how 
old this stuff is and how far back it goes. And I might not have done a good job in explicitly tying it into uh, things like the Proud Boys and Boogaloo stuff, which you do. Uh, well, that's why people have to read the book. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, you do, a, you do a great through line of bringing it all the way through Trump and Gavin McGinnis. And one thing, one thing that really kind of drove me crazy and still drives me crazy, it happens all the time. I did like a recent very long thread on, on Twitter about it where I was laying out the map of Gavin McGinnis' white nationalist roots. And he's had white nationalist tattoos since like the 90s, like screwdriver. You mentioned all that stuff. Like you did um, your homework. A big problem I really have is how, and it's similar to the Jimmy Dore thing where he said, hey, I talked to a Boogaloo boy and you won't believe this. They're, they're anti this, this, this too, just like us. And like, we just took his word at what he believes, you know. Uh, same thing with McGinnis. A lot of people kind of, McGinnis has had several, wow, this thing happened and made me realize that uh, maybe political correctness is bad and that uh, I'm being turned into a uh, conservative or reactionary by discovering these new facts but then when you look into his history since canada he's he's and since the 90s when he was young he's been in this world forever and media people a lot of the time and it drives me nuts there was this uh journalist i knew who a writer who uh lived in brooklyn and um you know met her in person a few times who tweeted oh it's so funny that uh gavin mcginnis you know as a bit you know or whatever courted these white supremacists and you know ironically now he's kind of trapped doing this and i'm like no how do you guys no 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 no. (laughs) yes and it drove me nuts and i think one reason is that i feel like vice and gavin mcginnis and that aesthetic has done so much um like besides Gawker, I think Vice is probably the most influential thing on the voice of modern uh, New York or slash alternative alternative media that came up in the two thousands. Like I think a lot of people, to avoid saying that they were kind of taken in by this guy, and so much of people's aesthetic viewed themselves as having a very different politics um, from McInnes, uh, you know, came from McInnes and Vice that they've kind of made this cope where they tell themselves that. He was ironically playing a bit and and uh you know just just lost the plot or you know you know, like those movies where the cop goes undercover and then uh, you know goes to the right. cover and stuff and I really wanted to compliment that part of the book that you do not because uh, even in New York Times they recently had articles like that I'm like you guys are actual journalists that should do basic research how do you um you know write that this is a hipster left-wing guy who um you know did a recent heel turn it's not what it is he's always been this guy and i think i think that's a really um good part of the book with the proud boys is that you don't buy into that narrative which infuriates me yeah no i i try to be very careful to you know show that gavin in particular has been in this world for um for a minute now he's he's not uh he's not he's not a recent convert by any stretch yeah, pre-vice. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so uh, it goes very into, like, today's current events and, and news. So, yeah, definitely, definitely read it, not just for a history lesson, but it all goes right into, right into the present. And yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining us. I I hope we uh, got all the best parts of the book out there without uh, over explaining the book and giving, <laughs> I hope we're giving people, you know, enough that they want to go check it out because i think it's a pretty good book and and the resource section i think is really great too i think you did a really good job on giving people places to go to um 
flesh out and add some more meat to the bones if they want to. Yeah, I, I hope so. There's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of incredible work that's been done uh, on on these subjects that I you know learned a lot from, and so it was important to me to be able to share that with with anybody who is interested. Yeah, and something else that we do, I'll extend the invitation to you now, is that we um we have a live stream that we do too. The live stream is for like more topical things, things in the news, things that aren't like you know big ideas or whatever that uh you know would be kind of stale in like a week or two. So uh, I was going to say in the future, if anything happens, like, you know, in the news, like, for example, if there's like another capital riots type thing, uh, mm-hmm. we'd love to have you on the uh, live stream to kind of talk about uh, yeah. current events or whatever. So uh, would be happy to. Yeah, great. So thanks. Thanks again. And tell people again where to find you on Twitter if they want to follow you. Sure thing. Uh, it's My handle is at underscore grendan g-r-e-n-d-a-n okay and any websites uh i mean yeah i got like my portfolio is brendan-oconnor.com i'm a freelancer so i'm i'm all over the place okay great and the book is on blood blood red lines definitely check it out and take care brendan and to everyone out there be good thanks so much 